Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through The Stand. First of all, my apologies if I sound a little under the weather. I'm not sick, but the weather in Ohio shifted from a sweaty 82 degrees down to 58 degrees in about two days. (laughs) So my allergies (laughs) are killing me right now. However, we're going to push through because this is a very important episode. And we're just going to dive into chapter 73 because this chapter is a bit longer than the chapters we've been dealing with the last few weeks. And I'm also going to change the, um, I'm going to change this up a little bit. Usually you guys know that I give the summary of the chapter. And then when that's finished, I'll give you my review or slash thoughts. Um, But for chapter 73, there's a lot of smaller passages, scenes, etc. And I just think it would be more efficient if I summarize each passage and then give my review or thoughts on it there. Because... Like I said, this is a fairly long chapter, and I just think it would be fresher in our minds uh, to do it as we go rather than wait to the very end and then jump all the way back to the beginning. So I'm just going to change how I do things a little bit for this episode. So hopefully you guys are on board with that. So here we go with a quick recap of Chapter 72. Glenn, Ralph, Stu, Larry, and Kojak are continuing their trek west to Las Vegas. At a rather dangerous washout, they all attempt to climb down the gully and back up on the other side, but Stu loses his footing and falls, breaking his leg in multiple places. After a lot of arguing about leaving Stu behind, Larry and the other two men agree to continue on without him. Glenn leaves behind his arthritis medicine for Stu to take in case he opts to end things before the elements or animals take him. In chapter 73, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph finally make contact with Flag's men, but it takes them a few days after leaving Stu behind. They were making poor mileage, mostly because it seemed as if some of the heart had gone out of them. That night around the fire, Glenn realizes that Kojak is gone. The dog had followed him all the way across the country, and now he was missing. It felt like a terrible omen. Larry wonders quietly if perhaps Kojak stayed with Stu. It seems like Glenn believes that could be what happened. Surely it was better to think that way than to think something out there had gotten to him. And Larry explains that Stu said maybe God would send a raven to feed him. And since he doubts there are any out there, maybe he sent a dog instead. And then we learn that Kojak is with Stu. He had stayed with Stu until sunset after the other three men had left, and then eventually he scrambled up and out of the gully, disappearing. And Stu hadn't called him back, assuming Kojak was on his way to find Glenn again. Later that night, alone in the washout, Stu spots something slinking towards him in the dark. He has a rock to fight the thing off, but then he realizes it's Kojak, 
and the dog had brought Stu a rabbit. With a pocket knife, Stu is able to disembowel and skin it, and he needs a fire, of course, but it was probably too much to hope that Kojak would understand what he needed. Stu just randomly asks him to fetch, and sure enough, Kojak runs off and returns with a piece of dead wood in his jaws. Stu's praise thrills Kojak, who continues to bring Stu wood until Stu is able to get a comfortable fire going. He cooks the rabbit, giving half to Kojak before slipping into his sleeping bag. He's not sure he can sleep, but after taking one of Glenn's pills, he finally falls asleep, and Kojak sleeps next to him, providing heat after the fire dies out. And that was how, on the first night after the party was broken, Stu ate when the others went hungry and slept easy while their sleep was broken by bad dreams and an uneasy feeling of rapidly approaching doom. It makes sense that Kojak would stay with Stu. We always knew that Kojak was a special dog, considering the majority of the animals in the country died due to Captain Trips, except for cats, <laughs> including the dogs. Um, the fact that Kojak survived clearly means something. Even when left behind by Glenn, out of necessity, Kojak made the journey from New Hampshire to Colorado on his own, even surviving a run-in with Flag's wolves. And you have to wonder why the wolves, or even Flag, would want to mess with a dog, of all things. Maybe because Kojak had a bigger role to play in this story. Maybe he needed to be there, not to help Glenn, but to help Stu to keep him safe and alive after his accident in the washout. He knew Stu would be hungry. He brought him food. Kojak understood that fetch meant to bring him a wood. He slept close to Stu to keep him warm after the fire died out. So was Kojak sent by God or Mother Abigail? Was this his purpose the entire time? It seems that Larry, Glenn, and Ralph at least think Kojak might have stayed with Stu. And I think that gives them some comfort. At least having a companion out in the middle of nowhere in the desert may lessen a little bit of Stu's suffering, although I'm sure they still feel some guilt at having to leave him behind. On September 24th, Larry and the others camp northeast of the San Rafael Knob. That night around the campfire, Ralph asks Larry what he thinks Stu is doing. Larry's pretty blunt in his response that Stu is dying. He feels bad for saying it afterward, but it was almost surely true, so there's really no way to take it back. That night, Larry has some bad dreams. He was on tour with an outfit called the Shady Blues Connection, and the one he remembered most clearly on Waking. They were booked into Madison Square Garden, and the place was sold out. They took the stage to thunderous applause. Larry went to adjust his mic, bringing it down to proper height, and it couldn't budge. He went to the lead guitarist's mic, but that one was frozen too. Bass guitarist, organist, same thing. Booing and rhythmic clapping began to come from the crowd. One by one, the members of the Shady Blues Connection slunk off the stage, grinning fervently into high psychedelic shirt collars like the ones the birds used to wear back in 1966 when Roger McGeehan was still eight miles high or 800 and still Larry wandered from mic to mic trying to find at least one he could adjust 
but they were all at least nine feet tall and frozen solid. They looked like stainless steel cobras. Someone in the crowd began to yell for, Baby, can you dig your man? I don't do that number anymore, he tried to say. I stopped doing that one when the world ended. He didn't need Glenn to tell him what kind of dream that had been or what it meant. The dream where you can't reach the mics, can't adjust them, is a common one for rock musicians, just as common as dreaming that you're on stage and can't remember a single lyric. Larry guessed that all performers had a variation on one of those before. Before a performance. It was an inadequacy dream. It expressed that one simple overriding fear. What if you can't? What if you want to, but you can't? The terror of being unable to make the simple leap of faith, which is the place where any artist, singer, writer, painter, musician, begins. Larry hears his mom's voice. You're a taker, Larry. But no, he tells himself that he's not. He doesn't do that number anymore. He stopped doing it when the world ended. Larry has a feeling that whatever they're coming to will happen the next day. Whatever they're coming to, they're almost there. This is a very telling passage from Larry's point of view. He's still harboring guilt over leaving Stu behind. And like Glenn had pointed out in Chapter 72, Larry was trying not only to save Stu, but to save a part of himself as well. And with Stu being out of commission, Larry was the boss now, according to Mother Abigail. This gets stuck in Larry's subconscious, and he dreams he's failing on stage, trying to ignore the crowd begging him to sing, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? Because he doesn't play that tune anymore, not since the world ended. He acknowledges this dream means he's feeling inadequate, which makes sense as Larry has always had his own bout of insecurity. What if he can't do this? What if he can't do what Mother Abigail expected of him? What if he failed? What if he turned into the man that he had been before the superflu? When he tells the crowd he doesn't play that tune anymore, it's not just the song he's talking about. It's his selfishness, his desire to run when things get bad. But he's not that man anymore. At least he doesn't think he is. The next day, they continue their journey discussing the animals, how the buffalo were coming back because Nick and Tom had seen them. Larry continued to think that every hill crest would be when they see them. Flags men waiting for them. But there is no one in sight. And that night, Larry dreams again of trying to play a gig at Madison Square Garden. But like the other dream, he cannot get the microphone stands to adjust. The crowd is chanting for Baby Can You Dig Your Man? Except this time in the front row, there's Charles Manson and Richard Speck. John Wayne Gacy, and leading the chant with them, Randall Flagg, the Dark Man. The anticipation that the three men have seemed to intensify every day, especially every day that they are not met by Flagg's men. Larry keeps expecting it to be over, and every day it's not, and that makes it worse. Glenn happens to agree with Larry. He says, I feel the same way. It would be funny if he was just a mirage, wouldn't it? Nothing but a bad dream in our collective consciousness. Larry looked at him with momentary surprised consideration. Then he shook his head slowly. No, I don't think it's just a dream. Glenn smiled. Nor do I, young man. Nor do I. They made contact the following day. 
The closer and closer they get to Vegas, the more anxiety I think that they're feeling. Larry keeps telling himself it'll be over the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. I think the weight is allowing some of that fear to really seep in. You know when you have, excuse me, you know when you have a nightmare and you say, um, say there's a monster chasing you through your house. All you have to do is get to the door and run outside to safety. But that door seems to be getting farther and farther away no matter how fast you run. These passages sort of remind me of that. While I don't think that they're in any real hurry to confront their likely death, being without Stu, getting closer and closer every day to Vegas, it feels like they can't reach their destination and just finally let it be over, just end it all. They know it's coming and it's looming over them and it just seems to intensify with every day that passes that they don't see anybody. So when they finally meet up with Flag's men, it is the 28th of September. They see cars parked nose to nose, blocking the highway. Ralph asks Larry, what do we do now? And Larry tells them they go down and they see if God is really with them. So they walk and it's about five miles to meet the blocked road and the eight men hanging around the cars. They wonder if perhaps they'll be shot, given all the men are armed, But Ralph figures if they were going to fire their weapons, they would have done so already. He also marvels that these guys look just like the guys back in the free zone. Except, you know, they're all packing iron. When they finally come face to face with them, Larry greets them. And one of the men turns out to be Paul Burleson. He asks if they are Glendon Bateman, Lawson Underwood, Stuart Redman, and Ralph Brentner. So official. Ralph asks if they can count, as there's only three of them there. They explain that Stu had an accident and he had to be left behind. And then Paul Burleson arrests them, though he can't bring himself to say Flagg's name when Glenn asks in whose name that he has that authority. This seems to give Glenn, Ralph, and Larry some upper hand in this encounter. Glenn says Flagg's name without any problem, and all the others that Flag happens to go by. He is not afraid the way that Flag's own people are afraid of him. Burleson orders his men to grab the three and shoot the first one that moves, but Larry points out that they want to go. That's why they came. It's about a five to six hour drive back to Vegas. Glenn is put in one car, Larry and Ralph in the other, and it's in that car that they meet Barry Dorgan. Larry tells him that they were sent to kill Flag, but to Barry, this is preposterous. They're going straight to the county jail, and he just hopes that Flag will make it quick for them. He hasn't been in a very good mood lately. Larry asks why not, and Barry seems to realize that he said too much, so he falls silent. It's very clear in this particular passage that Flag's men are just following orders, even if they're not entirely sure why. They are clearly afraid of Flag, so much so that they won't even say his name. Would they be doing any of this if not for Flag ordering it? Reading this scene, you have to wonder how many of these men even shot a gun before. And I love that Ralph, Glenn, and Larry seem to have a lot of confidence here. They are not intimidated by these men with guns. They're snarky and they're blunt. They make Flag's men look like bumbling fools. And it's clear here that Flag's men, they have the guns, but Larry, Glenn, and Ralph are the ones who are really in charge. 
Brolson thinks that, you know, he's arresting Larry, Glenn, and Ralph, but they are going willingly. That really ought to give Brolson and Barry something to think about. When they get to Vegas, Larry notices that there are people just hanging out on the streets, talking to each other like nothing's going on. The electricity was on, the rubble removed, streets cleared. Glenn had been right, that flag moved fast in getting things in gear. But was this the right way to go about it? Larry points out to Dorgan that his people look like they've got the nervous complaint, but Barry doesn't reply. At the county jail, they go to cuff Larry and Ralph. Barry tells them that it's his orders flag, which of course angers Ralph. He says, your orders. I know who gives your orders. He murdered my friend Nick. What are you doing hooked up with that hellhound? You seem like a nice enough fella when you're by yourself. He was looking at Dorgan with such an expression of angry interrogation that Dorgan shook his head and looked away. As they put the handcuffs on Larry and Ralph, Larry asks what Barry did before the superflu. Barry says that he was a detective for the Santa Monica police. Which Larry thinks is pretty funny, that Barry was a police officer and he's here with Flag. Dorgan tells him that he saw what happens when men like Glenn and the others are in charge. And Glenn tells him quite calmly that his experiences with a few battered babies and drug abusers does not justify his embrace of a monster. Barry stays fairly calm and orders them to be put in separate cells and separate wings in the county jail. Glenn replies quite calmly, I don't think you'll be able to live with your choice, young man. There doesn't seem to be quite enough Nazi in you. Dorgan takes Larry to his cell, who, of course, wouldn't mind a shower. Dorgan says maybe and begins to ask Larry how many people they have in the free zone. Larry replies with a bullshit answer, aware that Dorgan is going to only give him a shower if Larry cooperates by spilling the beans about Boulder, this irritates Barry, but they both know that Larry can't tell him a thing. He tells Dorgan to put himself in Larry's place. Dorgan shook his head. I can't do that because I'm not nuts. Why are you guys here? What good do you think it's going to do you? He's going to kill you dead as dog shit tomorrow or the next day. And if he wants you to talk, you will. If he wants you to tap dance and jerk off at the same time, you'll do that too. You must be crazy. But Larry says that they were sent by Mother Abigail, an old woman Dorgan probably dreamed of too. Dorgan shakes his head and asks Larry if he's sure he doesn't want to get that shower. Larry laughs. He says, I don't work that cheap. Send your own spy over to our side. If you can find one that doesn't look like a weasel, the second Mother Abigail's name gets mentioned, that is. When Larry is left alone, he settles in on his bunk, listening to the silence. He had always hated being alone, but in a way he had always been, until he arrived in the free zone. While a part of him feels like Flag will kill him dead as dog shit tomorrow, deep down he knows it won't happen that way. And he repeats Glenn's mantra, I will fear no evil. This scene may seem mildly insignificant, but it's really telling of how far Larry has come. He wants something. Someone offers it to him, and all he has to do is answer a question. But Larry laughs it off. He is not going to toss the free zone under the flag-driven bus just for a shower. Larry may be in the cell, but he's the one running the show here. 
Dorgan won't get him to talk, although Dorgan thinks Flag will be able to do it with no problem. Um, side note, he wasn't able to get Dana to talk. I'm just saying. <laughs> Dorgan doesn't seem angry or violent. He's honestly baffled as to why they came to Vegas in the first place. They have to know that Flag is going to kill them. But it doesn't matter. Mother Abigail sent them, so it would be done. Obviously, Dorgan dreamed of Mother Abigail, too, but he made his choice in heading west instead. Larry is taking this in stride, as well as he can, anyway, and now all he can do is wait. So he lays down to sleep, repeating, I will fear no evil. It's Glenn that Flag comes to see first. Glenn in his cell, and at 10 o'clock the next day, Flag and Lloyd arrive. Glenn had found a piece of charcoal under his cot and had written a proverb on the wall. I am not the potter, not the potter's wheel, but the potter's clay is not the value of the shape attained as dependent upon the intrinsic worth of the clay as upon the wheel and the master's skill. He's admiring this proverb when he hears Flag's footsteps, boot heels coming down the hallway. As Flag approaches, Glenn's arthritis gets worse, but he doesn't show the pain in his face when Flag appears. Instead, he smiles and he greets Flag with an amusing line. You're not half the boogeyman we thought you must be. Flag introduces Glenn to Lloyd. Lloyd Henry, meet Glenn Bateman, sociologist, Free Zone Committee member, and single existing member of the Free Zone Think Tank, now that Nick Andros is dead. Flag asks Glenn how his arthritis is, clearly aware of Glenn's pain, clearly making it worse for the man on purpose. But Glenn merely smiles and says it's fine. He even thanks Flag as sleeping indoors had seemed to help it. Flag's smile faltered a bit. Glenn caught just a glimpse of narrow surprise and anger. A fear? And then Flag pulls the same stunt with Glenn as he did with Dana. He tells Glenn that he's going to let him go. Glenn will be given a motorbike and he can drive back to the free zone at his leisure. Glenn's arthritis is getting worse, though he says that he cannot leave without his friends. Flag agrees he can have his friends. All he has to do is ask, get on his knees and ask. This causes Glenn to start laughing, and as he laughs, the pain in his joints start to lessen. He feels better, stronger, in control again. He tells Flag, Oh, you're a card. I tell you what to do. Why don't you find a nice big sand pile, get yourself a hammer, and pound all that sand right up your ass. Yes, of course, this pisses off Flag. Any pretense of camaraderie is gone now. Flag takes hold of the door and the locking mechanism. After an electric buzzing sounds, a fire leaps out between his fingers, causing the lockbox to fall to the floor, smoking. Lloyd, of course, cries out, and Flag grabs the bars and throws the door back. He warns Glenn to stop laughing, but Glenn can't. Glenn says, you're nothing. Oh, pardon me, it's just that we were all so frightened. We made such a business out of you. I'm laughing as much at our own foolishness at your regrettable lack of substance. And then Flag orders Lloyd to shoot Glenn. And Glenn continues to taunt Flag. Why doesn't Flag kill him? Touch him with his fingers and stop his heart or make his brain have an embolism. 
He's thoroughly amused, and Flag is pretty pissed off. Glenn seems pretty unperturbed by this. He suggests Lloyd shoot Flag. Lloyd pulls the trigger, but his aim is off, pissing off Flag again. Glenn continues to smile. He tells Lloyd, I repeat, if you must shoot somebody, shoot him. He's really not human at all, you know. I once described him to a friend as the last magician of rational thought, Mr. Henreid. That was more correct than I knew. But he's losing his magic now. It's slipping away from him and he knows it. And you know it, too. Shoot him now and save us all God knows how much bloodshed and dying. Flag intervenes here, reminding Lloyd of everything Flag has done for him. Glenn was the kind of man that Lloyd had wanted to get back at, right? Little guys who talk big. Glenn points out that Flag lies, and Lloyd knows it. But Lloyd, ever the loyalist, tells Glenn that Flag has told him more truth than anyone else in his whole lousy life. And he shoots Glenn three times. On the floor, Glenn is dying, but tells Lloyd that it's okay. He didn't know any better. This enrages Lloyd, who shoots Glenn again, this time in the face. Lloyd shoots him twice more, unaware that he's crying. He's reminded of the rabbit that he had forgotten, left to eat his own paws before it died. He remembered Poke, the family, and the white Connie, gorgeous George, the jail, and the rat, Trask, whose leg had looked like a KFC dinner after a while. Flag praises Lloyd for a job well done, but Lloyd angrily says that he didn't do it for him. Flag disagrees. He turns the stone around Lloyd's neck into a key. He had promised Lloyd that after all. Flag reveals that he knows who is leaving. Ken, Whitney, Jenny. He feels like maybe it's better to let them go. But Lloyd is his servant, good and faithful. Lloyd supposes that he is. And maybe it is going bad for reasons Flag can't understand. But Flag says that the old magician has a few tricks left in him yet. One or two. Now listen to me. Time is short if we want to stop this, this crisis in confidence. If we want to nip it in the bud, as it were, we'll want to finish things tomorrow with Underwood and Brentner. Now listen to me very carefully. Later that night, Lloyd talks to the Rat Man, to Paul Burleson and Barry Dorgan. They begin construction on the front lawn of the MGM Grand on the night of the 29th. Julie Lowry approaches the Rat Man to try and find out what's going on. Rat Man isn't sure, but he has an idea. Julie implies that she'll sleep with him if he knows what's going to happen. But Rat Man suggests that everyone will know in the morning, and Julie slips away. By the time Lloyd goes to sleep, the work is done. Two large cages stood on the back of two flatbeds. There were squarish holes in the right and left sides of each. Parked close by were four cars, each with a trailer hitch. Attached to each hitch was a heavy steel towing chain. The chain snaked across the lawn of the Grand, and each ended just inside the squarish holes in the cages. At the end of each chain, there dangled a single steel handcuff. So, I hate that Glenn is gone. I hate that he had to die by Lloyd's hand in that cell. But you have to admit that he went out like a total badass. Despite being in pain from his arthritis, he stood tall. He hid his discomfort as not to give Flag that satisfaction. 
Glenn is able to get under Flack's skin quite a bit in this passage. It reminded me a lot of Nadine. Not only that Glenn refuses to get on his knees and asks to be let go, but he laughs at Flag. One thing that villains hate more than anything is to be laughed at. They want to induce fear. They thrive off of holding that power over others, that intimidation. But Glenn is very clearly not intimidated or afraid of Flag. They had worked him up in their heads as this formidable foe, And to Glenn, he's just this man. Of course, he's a man with some magic. But Glenn went out the way that he told Larry Stu and Ralph, I will fear no evil. He provokes Flag into killing him, just as Nadine had done. Or rather, he provokes Flag into getting Lloyd to doing the dirty work. You can see Lloyd feels some hesitation, but he's always been a follower at heart, and he obeys Flag's orders. Glenn attempts to get Lloyd to face the truth about Flag, but that only angers Lloyd into pulling the trigger again and again. He has finally found his place in the world as Flag's right-hand man, and now someone is here telling him that he chose wrong. Never mind the fact that Lloyd had already been having his own doubts, had been questioning Flag. Being told to his face that Flag is a liar, what does that make Lloyd? Where does that lead him? Where does that leave him? So he kills Glenn, though in the end it seems as though Glenn forgives him, because as Glenn says, Lloyd didn't know any better. Lloyd is reminded of all the shitty things he's done in his life, and it had been Flag who made him somebody. Flag rewards Lloyd's loyalty with a key around his neck, and he tells Lloyd what he wants him to do. Build Ralph and Larry's death devices on the lawn of the MGM Grand. What I find interesting is... Why didn't Flag kill Glenn himself? He clearly has the ability, if he could burn the locking mechanisms off the door. He had driven that lawyer in California mad with a look. So why didn't he do what Glenn suggested? Stopping his heart? Causing a brain embolism? Surely there might have been some satisfaction in Flag killing Glenn for laughing and mocking him. So why did he have Lloyd do it? Has Flag ever outright killed anyone in the book? Chris Bradenton, I guess, could be one. He made him disappear. He drove the lawyer mad, and yes, he threw Nadine off the balcony. But anyone could have done that. I do think he is capable of killing another, but does he depend on others to do all the bloody work for him? The judge was killed by Bobby Terry. Dana killed herself. I find it fascinating that Flag wouldn't, or couldn't, kill Glenn with his own hands. And I do think that Lloyd killed Glenn not for Flag, but because Glenn was poking at something that some insecurity that Lloyd had. I think somewhere deep down, Lloyd knew that Glenn was right. And it was just too much to have to face that himself. So, um, yeah, I think he was reminded of all the crappy things he had done in his life. And sure, Flag pulled him out of that, but he's still on that same crappy path. And Glenn knew it. So I do think that Lloyd pulled the trigger because of Glenn more than, you know, more than Flag telling him to do it. Obviously, I don't think that Flag had intended for Glenn to die that way in his cell with no witnesses. Flag had wanted the men to be an example, a lesson to those in Vegas to show them who was in charge and what happens when you disobey him. Like the judge and Dana and Nadine, it had gone wrong. 
Glenn had managed to provoke him the way that Nadine had, calling into question his power, his ability to intimidate and induce fear. Glenn saw him for what he was, which was nothing. Glenn was such an amazing character, the quote-unquote wise older man with plenty of cynical viewpoints and advice, but he also had a really fun sense of humor, and I loved his friendship with Stu, his points of view at the committee meetings, and I love that he went out on his own terms, refusing to bend to flag. And now with Glenn gone, that leaves Ralph and Larry. Larry is waiting in his cell. He had felt the two people that he had been all his life, the real one and the ideal one, merge into one living being. His mother would have liked this Larry and Rita Blakemore. It was a Larry to whom Wayne Stuckey never would have had to tell the facts. It was a Larry that even that long-ago oral hygienist might have liked. I'm going to die. If there's a God, and now I believe there must be, that's his will. We're going to die, and somehow all of this will end as a result of our dying. Larry felt like Glenn was already dead. He knew it. He had heard the shooting in the other wing and the direction where they had taken Glenn. To try and find a silver lining, well, Glenn had been in pain with his arthritis and he was older. Whatever Flag had planned for them would no doubt be more unpleasant than what had happened to Glenn. Ratman and Burleson arrived to get Larry that morning. Ratman seems rather gleeful of what's about to happen, but Burleson tells Larry that this was not his idea. He confirms that Bateman was killed trying to escape, but Larry begins to laugh because he knows better. Larry tells Burleson and Ratman that one day they'll be shot and killed too, trying to escape. They're soon joined by another five men, one of whom is Ralph. Ralph knows Glenn has died too, but he says it's almost over for them, isn't it? Larry says that it is, and this irritates the men that they're with, and they tell Ralph and Larry to shut up. But Ralph insists, no, it's over. Don't you know it? Can't you feel it? Ratman pushes Ralph and tells him he doesn't want to hear any more of that honky bullshit voodoo. Larry taunts him, tells him he's looking pale. He looks frightened. They all did. There was a feeling in the air, a sense that they had all entered the shadow of some great and onrushing thing. Inside the van labeled Las Vegas County Jail, Ralph tells Larry that he heard everyone in Vegas would be there. He thinks maybe it's crucifixion or something like it. They're both scared, but they sit together and hold hands, wishing they knew what all this was for. Why did they come? What's the point? But Larry doesn't know. Larry was scared, but there's a deeper sense of peace. It was all going to work out. I will fear no evil, he muttered, but he was afraid. He closed his eyes, thought of Lucy. He thought of his mother. Random thoughts, getting up for school on cold mornings. The time he had thrown up in church, finding a skin magazine in the gutter, and looking at it with Rudy, both of them about nine years old. Watching the World Series in his first fall in L.A. with Yvonne Wetterlin. He didn't want to die. He was afraid to die, but he had made his peace with it as best he could. The choice, after all, had never been his to make, and he had come to believe that death was just a staging area, a place to wait, the way you waited in a green room before going on to play. He rested as easily as he could, trying to make himself ready. Like before, Ralph and Larry here, they're confident, even if deep down they are afraid. 
They poke at Burleson and Ratman, letting them know it's almost over for them. This isn't well received, after all, but there's not a lot of menace in the response. Ratman and Burleson are scared, too. It sort of feels like maybe they don't have any other option. The same way that Nadine felt and Harold, Lloyd. Even if these men changed their minds and tried to help Larry and Ralph, it would just mean their deaths. At the MGM Grand, Larry and Ralph are amazed at the sight and the crowd. People are everywhere. Everyone Larry looked at refused to meet his eye. Every face seemed pallid, distant, marked for death and seeming to know it. Yet here they were. Ralph and Larry are taken toward the cages, and Ralph realizes from the machinery that they're going to be pulled apart. They're ordered to take off their shirts and they get into the cages. Ralph picks up one of the handcuffs and throws it out of the cage, hitting Paul Burleson on the head. Larry tells Ralph to let Paul do his thing. Then he pokes at Paul, asking if they taught him how to do this in the Santa Monica PD. Some people in the crowd laugh nervously. Someone shouts about police brutality. Larry spits on his own chains, and a small cheer goes up in the crowd. Larry wonders if maybe they would rise up and fight back, but in his heart, he didn't believe it. Their faces were too pale, too secretive. The defiance from the back was meaningless. It was the sound of kids cutting up in a study hall, no more than that. There was doubt here. He could feel it, the disaffection. But Flag colored even that. These people would steal away in the dead of night for some of the great empty space that the world had become. And the walking dude would let them go, knowing he only had to keep a hardcore. People like Dorgan and Burleson. The runners and midnight creepers could be gathered up later, perchance to pay the price of their imperfect faith. There'd be no open rebellion here. Larry goads Paul a bit more before turning to the crowd, yelling that they know this is wrong. He says, I don't expect you to stop it, but I do expect you to remember it. We're being put to death because Randall Flagg is afraid of us. He's afraid of us and the people we came from. A rising murmur ran through the crowd. Remember the way we die. And remember that next time, it may be your turn to die this way, with no dignity, just an animal in a cage. And then Flag arrives, walking with Lloyd. He's carrying a piece of paper, and the crowd is silent. The dark man was grinning. Standing in front of the crowd, Flag opens the paper and begins to read. Know you that this is a true bill, to which I, Randall Flag, have put my name on this 30th day of September, the year 1990 now known as the Year One, Year of the Plague. Know you that these men, Lawson Underwood and Ralph Brentner, are spies here in Las Vegas with no good intent, but rather with seditious motives, who have entered this state with stealth and under cover of darkness. Of course, Ralph and Larry interrupt several times to point out that Flag is not his real name, and under cover of darkness... They were coming down Route 70 in broad daylight. They were taken at noon on the interstate. But Flag ignores them, and he continues, Know you that the cohorts of these men were responsible for the sabotage bombing of the helicopters at Indian Springs, and therefore responsible for the deaths of Carl Hull, Bill Jameson, and Cliff Benson. They are guilty of murder. This accusation takes one man by surprise. Stan Bailey from Indian Springs, who had known it was not these men, it was Trashcan Man who had killed the pilots. 
flagrants again and excuses those with children. He turns to the cars that were idling, ready. But then there's commotion as a man steps forward. Whitney Horgan. He cries out to the crowd that they know this isn't right. Whitney is extremely pale and shaking, and of course he's terrified standing up the flag. But he continues. They were all Americans once. And this isn't how Americans are supposed to act, listening to some murdering freak in cowboy boots. This brings a gasp to the crowd. But Whitney insists that's what he is. You want to watch these two guys ripped in two right in front of you, huh? You think that's the way to start a new life? You think a thing like that can ever be right? I tell you, you'll have nightmares about it for the rest of your lives. And they need to stop this. They need time to think. Flag interrupts him, and he tells Whitney that he should have kept still. He would have let him go. Why would he want someone like Whitney? Flag uses his magic to draw Whitney to him. I knew about your plans, the dark man said. I knew what you meant to do before you did, and I would have let you crawl away until I was ready to take you back. Maybe in a year, maybe in ten. But that's all behind you now, Whitney. Believe it. Whitney screams that Flag is no man. He's some kind of devil. Flag agrees, though only loud enough for Lloyd and Larry to hear him. Then he triggers a blue ball of fire no bigger than a ping pong. He uses it to fuse Whitney's mouth shut, crossing one cheek, digging a charred and instantly catarized trench. It closed Whitney's eyes, moving up into his hair, burning a bald patch there. Ralph joins Larry, repeating over and over again, I will fear no evil. Whitney finally falls face down, and then the blue fire hangs in the air, bigger now, too bright to look at. The dark man points at it, moving it towards the crowd. Flag challenges them. Is there anyone else there that disagrees with his sentence? If so, let them speak now. Silence greets them. Satisfied, Flag wants to get on with things. But the crowd begins to part, and Flag is taken by surprise. People in the crowd begin to cry out. The ball of blue light is spinning and dipping uncertainly. Larry is only able to catch bits and pieces. Man, can man, trash, trashy. Someone was coming through the crowd, as if in an answer to the dark man's challenge. Now we know what Lloyd and the others were building. They plan to dismember Larry and Ralph alive. No simple crucifixion for Mother Abigail's men. No flag wants a spectacle. And he wants everyone to see it, except those with children, of course. What a guy. But even faced with this new horror, Larry and Ralph stand true. They don't shrink away or beg for their lives. They stand strong, trying to appeal to the humanity in the crowd. They want everyone to remember what they see that day, because someday it could be them locked in the cage. Flag reads this ridiculous paper to justify Ralph and Larry's execution, He accuses them of being spies, of trying to sneak into Vegas in the dead of night. He accuses them of setting the bombs at Indian Springs. And they killed those pilots, even though several people knew it was Trash Can Man. Perhaps Flag thought it was easier to pin murder on Ralph and Larry, as if that would harden the crowd against them and heighten their loyalty to Flag. But just when you think it's all settled, 
Good old Whitney Horgan interrupts. He tries to appeal to the crowd as well, tries to get them to see just how wrong this is. Is this America? Is this what they are now? Yes, he's terrified, but he is brave enough to stand up to flag. Brave enough to try and get everyone else to understand that Flag is a murderer, some kind of devil. No one comes to Whitney's aid, and Flag taunts him a bit before killing him in front of everyone. It's a pretty gruesome way to go, too, I have to admit, but hats off to you, Whitney. You're a little too late, but in the end, you tried to do the right thing. We saw flashes of Whitney's reluctance in previous chapters, especially with Dana. And I would have thought that he and Jenny and the others would have disappeared into the night by now, but they weren't fast enough, apparently. But perhaps Whitney just gave them the time that they needed. Because if Whitney hadn't interrupted, maybe Larry and Ralph would have already begun to die. But instead, there's someone else who has arrived in Las Vegas, and it's Trash Can Man. Flag felt terror seep into the chambers of his heart. It was a terror of the unknown and the unexpected. He had foreseen everything, even Whitney's foolish spur-of-the-moment speech. He had foreseen everything but this. The crowd, his crowd, was parting, peeling back. There was a scream, high, clear, and freezing. Someone broke and ran, then someone else. And then the crowd, already on an emotional hair trigger, broke and stampeded. Flag tries to keep the crowd intact, but it's too late. Not even the dark man could stop them. Terrible, impotent rage rose in him, joining the fear and making some new and volatile mix. It had gone wrong again. In the last minute, it had somehow gone wrong. Like the old lawyer in Oregon, the woman slitting her throat on the window glass, and Nadine, Nadine falling. People ran across the lawn, the street. They saw the final guest arrived like some grim vision out of a horror tale. They had seen, perhaps, the rattled face of some final awful retribution, and they had seen what he brought with him. Flag finally sees what they saw, as did Lloyd and Larry and Ralph. It was Donald Merwin Elbert now known as the Trash Can Man, now and forever. World without end, hallelujah, amen. Behind him was an electric cart. He bobbed back and forth in the open seat. He was in the last stages of radiation sickness. His hair was gone. His arms, poking out of the tatters of his shirt, were covered with open, running sores. His face was a cratered red soup from which one desert-faded blue eye peered, with a terrible, pitiful intelligence. His teeth were gone. His nails were gone. His eyelids were frayed flaps. He looked like a man who had driven his electric cart out of the dark and burning subterranean mouth of hell itself. Trash Can Man tells Flag that I brought it. I brought you the fire. I'm sorry. Lloyd tries to calmly talk to Trash, but Trash explains that it's the big one, the A-bomb, the big fire. My life for you. Lloyd asks him to take it away. It's dangerous. And the dark man becomes the pale man, whining at Lloyd to get Trash to take it back where he got it. They're trying to get Trash to get rid of it. But then Ralph shrieks Larry's name. Larry, the hand of God. He was pointing to the sky. 
Larry looked up. He saw the ball of electricity flag had flicked from the end of his finger. It had grown to a tremendous size. It hung in the sky, jittering towards Trash Can Man, giving off sparks like hair. Larry realized dimly that the air was now so full of electricity that every hair on his own body was standing on end. And the thing in the sky did look like a hand. Flag screams, but when Larry looks, the dark man is no longer there. He had a bare impression of something monstrous standing in front of where Flag had been. Something slumped and hunched and almost without shape. Something with enormous yellow eyes slit by dark cat pupils. And then it was gone, leaving behind Flag's clothes standing upright with nothing in them. And then they collapsed. The crackling blue fire rushed towards the yellow electric cart. Trash had lost his hair and thrown up blood and finally vomited out his own teeth as the radiation sickness sank deeper and deeper into him. Yet he had never faltered in his resolve to bring it back to the dark man. You could say that he had never flagged in his determination. The blue fire was drawn to the back of the cart, and Lloyd seemed to think that, yeah, they were all fucked. But Larry is relieved. He thanks God, and he thinks I will fear no evil. Silent white light filled the world, and the righteous and unrighteous alike were consumed in that holy fire. Okay, so you know this problem named Trash Can Man that Flags had plenty of time to take care of? Yeah, that problem is back. And with him is a nuclear warhead. Flag dismissed Trash so easily after Indian Springs, telling Lloyd to kill Trash when he returned, but to make it painless and quick. He had been misled on Trash, but he hadn't considered him a big enough threat to take care of Trash himself. And that is what became Flag's real undoing. Trash brought the bomb, wanting to please Flag, although sometimes reading this I wonder if he wasn't driven by some other force. Someone or something had to have known Trash's loyalty to Flag would result in something this dangerous. Were Larry, Ralph, Stu, and Glenn meant to be a means to get everyone in Vegas together at the same time? One last appeal to whatever goodness they may have had inside of them to save them. Had they all risen up against Flag, would the hand of God formed out of Flag's blue fire to destroy everything? Maybe Larry and Ralph, given that Stu and Glenn had both fell in their own way prior to the confrontation, were plan A. Maybe the A-bomb was plan B. It's really hard to say, but I'd love to know what you guys think of this chapter, what you think Larry, Glenn, Stu, and Ralph's purpose was, or if Trash was always going to be Flag's demise. Well, Flag and Trash, after all, because it was Flag's fire that triggered the bomb. It was Flag's mistakes that destroyed Las Vegas. His hate and his ego, his narcissism, his inability to see things that would actually take him down. After all, he had seen all of this but for trash, and he really should have known better. But he underestimated Donald Merwin Elbert, and now he lost everything. You'll notice that Lloyd and even Flagg completely wimped out there at the end. Flagg whined. He whined for Lloyd to get rid of Trash Can Man. Even Trash sensed that Flagg's power was diminished. After Flagg asked Lloyd to get rid of him, Trash was angry, and he asked Lloyd where Flag went. He was gone. 
But Flag was there, only Trash didn't feel that power of him in that moment. Flag was such a whiny little asshole. <laughs> and then he takes off, he disappears. Did he change form? Did he escape in time before the bomb went off? Even as Lloyd realizes that they were all screwed, Larry and Ralph held on, grateful in a sense that it was all over. They died bravely, making their final stand against Flag. It's really difficult um, losing so many wonderful characters in one chapter. Glenn and then Larry and Ralph. On a personal note, Larry has always been my favorite character in The Stand. I feel like his character arc was one of the most fascinating. King did an excellent job with Larry's character development. He was showing us this selfish musician who takes and who is always out for himself, even with his mother and his friends. I mean, when his own mother was dying, Larry was wondering why this stuff always happened to him because he had wanted to go back west. And then King turned him into a man who could lead, who could make the hard decisions, but show that they still affected him. He learned to love and say no to temptation. Rather than find a way out of it, Larry went with the other three men. He wasn't perfect, but when he had to, he took charge. He was afraid that he wouldn't be able to do it. But when faced with Flag's men and with Flag, he stood up and he spoke up. And he never tried to barter or make a deal to save himself. Larry died the hero that he never thought he could be. It's just so much loss. Pretty much everyone on the free zone has died, but for Fran and Stu. And we still don't know if Stu will even make it back to Boulder. But speaking of Stu, next week in Chapter 74, Stu is preparing himself for the worst, but there may be some hope left. So you would think with Flag supposedly dead, we would more or less be finished with the stand, but you would be wrong. We still have five chapters to go, and we're not quite to the conclusion of the novel, but with Flag supposedly destroyed, what did you guys think of his demise, of the destruction of Vegas? Was it a satisfying conclusion for that part of the world? Do you think things might have ended differently if Larry or even Whitney Horgan were able to appeal to the crowd in Vegas, or were they all too far gone? Was this a necessary step? It's always been a hard chapter. 72 and 73 have always been a difficult uh, little piece of this book to get through. Uh, we knew these characters from the very beginning, at least Larry and Glenn and Stu, and then Ralph a bit later. Ralph, who's always a good guy. So we had to say goodbye to three of them. And uh, Kojak and Stu at this point are still alive. So we get to continue on the journey with them. And that will be next week in Chapter 74. And I guess that's it for this uh, episode, everybody. I would love to know what you guys think. You can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And of course, I am on social media at The Circle Opens. Um, I try to be as active as I can on at least Twitter, but I'm mostly on Instagram. So the circle opens if you guys want to follow. And thank you to everybody who has left me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. You guys are amazing. Thank you for the kind words. I appreciate them very, very much. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I'm still kind of um, dealing with the aftermath of Chapter 73 and the knowledge that there are only five chapters to go in this monstrous book, but it's been quite the journey and I'm very pleased with the end result thus far. So thank you guys. Thank you for listening. 
M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. 